Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I am joined by Yosef Rabina, and we're going to be discussing Russian grand strategy and the utility of sanctions. Yosef, his education is an MA in International Relations at Diplomacy at the University College of International Relations and Public Relations in Prague, International Relations and Affairs at Delana University, PhD in International Relations, and lastly, his PhD in International Relations at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. His work as a regional manager as HDTS in Moscow, visiting lecturer at Moscow State Institute, political consultant in Moscow, and chief analyst at Exporter.sk in Slovakia. His articles recently published, which we'll be digging into further details today, are The Real Danger of Thucydides' Trap in Post-Soviet Space and A Realism 101 Lesson in Russia's Zero-Sum Logic, both for the New Eastern Europe. Lastly, Navigating International Business in the Current Climate of Sanctions for Exporty.sk. Yosef, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Hello. So this is, as we were discussing previously before hitting uh, the record button today, this is a very timely and, and relevant discussion. Um, those who thought that it would be a quick war one way or another were, looks like, increasingly disproven. And what we're seeing now is a more longer, protected, drawn out, some might say frozen conflict or, or hot war, and that's happening between Russia and, and Ukraine. And inevitably, as the media cycle shifts into other topics, the war still drags on, lives are still lost, and calamity ensues. It's important to have the, the privilege of time when we are discussing complex situations, especially when, in, when discussing war and, and armed conflict between two industrial nations. But I believe enough time has passed now that we're able to have a bit of a deeper glimpse into what's going on beyond the sensationalist headlines. And that's why I could think of no greater guest to talk about this than, than yourself, Yosef. But uh, if you'll indulge me, I wanted to start with a recent story and see what you make of it. On the 5th of July, Daily Beast reported that Russian inmates are being brought into fighting in Ukraine by the Wagner Group, which is a, a private Russian military force tied to the Kremlin. The reporter believed they're being offered these inmates a get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak, facing less than 20% survival rate. Those who do manage to return alive would be reportedly offered up to 200,000 rubles, extending to 5 million for their families if they die. There's no written contract uh, between the Wagner Group and these inmates. There has been story after story about shortages of manpower within the Russian army in Ukraine. All of this, of course, on top of the horrendous losses in material, uh, including the Black Sea's uh, fleet flagship in the famous incident. Yosef, why does Russia resort to press gag rather than full mobilization as some were expected? And would that be tantamount to admitting the war is not going as planned? Yes. It could sort of admission to something what the Russians don't, don't really want to admit that, uh, that they're suffering heavy losses in Ukraine. But also the practice you just described isn't 
anything new in particular. Uh, we've seen something similar during the Arab Spring, especially during the Syrian civil war, where the the inmate inmates were uh, freed and and they were they they, they just fought along the Syrian Free Army. And if we would investigate deeper into Ukraine army and and and, and the composition of its army, we would see that they they're true to using inmates in in in, uh, in their foot soldiers uh, ranks. So uh, I, I mean, uh, I mean, yes, Russia is avoiding full scale mobilization. I think they're also aware of the fact that. Uh, if they would announce uh, full-scale mobilization, it might turn against them into a full-scale rebellion against the the Russian regime, which would impact uh, the stability of uh, Russian regime. And uh, then, I mean, the ability to wage war against Ukraine uh, would be out of question. So there are several several dynamics that can uh, be behind the explanation of that. We cannot be really sure, but I mean, uh, it's not something unusual that inmates are fighting in, in wars. And I think on top of that, Yosef, one of the one of the threads that's emerging is that this might be just as much about Russia's external, as much of uh, as its domestic politics, and it seems the two are intertwined in a sort of Kremlinology that is sometimes difficult. For people outside of Russia to understand, we'll, we'll be digging that, digging into that in a moment. But let, let's talk about the Russian grand strategy and, and, and why Ukraine. And one of the big questions that I sort of ask myself, and if, if you'll be so kind as to indulge me, Yosef, is if Putin could jump back in time to, let's say, January 2022, and someone were to ask him, should we still proceed with this, this invasion? bearing in mind that he's got full knowledge of how events will unfold in our timeline, would he still decide to press ahead? Is there something so vital, so critical for Russia in this invasion that it is worth everything that it has already sacrificed? You know, even though we are still trying to understand why uh, why Russia invaded Ukraine now, um, I don't think that he would decide otherwise. And uh, I don't think that if there's someone else in the Kremlin at the moment of, uh, of in a, on, 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 on February 24th, uh, that he would decide uh, differently. I mean, maybe not on fe- February 24th, maybe it would be May 1st, maybe it would be uh, May 9th, which is uh, which is actually a celebration of the Great Victory Day. Uh, maybe it would be a, a year later, but uh, this is exactly uh, where we are getting the Russians uh, very wrong, because the because the general perception here is that the invasion of Ukraine is a single man act. And uh, this perception is deeply flawed and shows how little we understand Russian strategic culture. You know, if you look at the, the Russian political hierarchy, you would, you, wouldn't, you would find very few people who are actually opposing the invasion. You can, and you can say that, yeah, they, they are afraid for their, for their lives and for their positions and et cetera. But uh, if, you, if you really 
dig deep into Russian history and how their national interests national interests were formed, you would find one commonality in uh, all across the Russian history. And, uh, and this commonality is uh, fear for sovereignty. I mean, it's not something unusual for states, but Russian, Russian statehood was formed in, uh, in, in constant threats from, from either nomadic tribes uh, riding uh, from the great steppes or from, from the West, from the Polish um, knights and, and, and German knight, uh, knights who were, uh, who were often labeled as, uh, as Zapadniki. Russia fought several wars with Sweden. They even lost Moscow for some time to Polish-Lithuanian duchy. So, so you know, this fear for sovereignty transmitted to contemporary time. And I mean, if you take this this very basic book from from Mr. Kaplan about the revenge of geography, it's uh, it's very true uh, and it's very very good in in mirroring what uh, what the Russian uh, national or how the Russian national interest was formed. So this fear for sovereignty transmitted to contemporary Russia. And you can see that in 90s, Russians were fighting against separatists in, in, in Chechnya. Uh, they, were, they were trying to prevent Tatarstan to declare independence. Uh, and they were witnessing all sorts of revolutions in their neighborhood, in the countries that they considered as their uh, sole sphere of influence. And they saw that as a as some sort of a some sort of a continuous activity to undermine the, the domestic stability in Russia and therefore keeping it weak. So the the Russian the Russian thinking here is that the best way how to keep your sovereignty intact, how to coerce your foreign policy in, a, in an autonomous way is to, to become a great power because the great powers in by definition, are the only only actors in the international system who are actually uh, capable of uh, defending their own sovereignty. So, so this is perhaps why Russia is so anxious about losing uh, losing influence in a, in a post-Soviet space, and it was losing its influence in a post-Soviet space from from 90s and we've seen that it's constantly losing it if you take a look on georgia if you take a look on armenia azerbaijan you see you see kazakhstan today uh central asian countries that are that are always uh, under uh, under influence of china especially in economic terms and uh, and belarus is also the case even though now it seems that russia has uh, situation in control, but uh, until August 2020, when the the late the, when, when the previous elections in in Belarus took place, Lukashenko was hedging on 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 Russia's tensions, and he was trying to use uh, use benefits from both sides, and that's why Putin wasn't really willing to 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 support him in power. But uh, yeah, but once he saw that um, that the Western Western or West is supporting Tsikhanovskaya against him, he knew that uh, if she gets to power, then uh, it might mean uh, the end of Russian prevalence in Belarus. So 
you see you see how the uh, Russians are very anxious about uh, about shifting balance of power towards West, and they see it as a zero sum game, and that's why. And it's because they they fear for their sovereignty. And I think this is this is a really important point that I want to touch on a bit further. Much is talked about misinformation, Russian misinformation, but I think actually this is a great example of Western misinformation, not in the digital online sense, but in a more pure sense of the word. There is a misinformation from a Western mindset about the Russian mindset. And I think this explains a lot about the, the historical relationship at the two ends of the world. But I'll just stop here for a minute. What does this disinformation or misinformation mean? I think in a Western mindset, it's difficult to put into perspective what you've just mentioned, which is this, this fear of invasion and, and this concern for sovereignty. And I think perhaps part of that answer might be, Yosef, because here in the UK, we haven't had an invasion of the country for many centuries. And it's the same in the USA, Canada, and many other Western uh, powers. And so this, this, this fear of, a, of an incoming horde uh, of not being able to trust one's neighbors is, is in a sense quite, quite a novel, quite a radical idea for many of us here in the West. And I think it goes a long way into explaining why it's so difficult for us to, to relate to that mindset. And, and that's where this misinformation, if I can use the word liberally, might come from. And, but it also extends to the figure of Putin himself. And you've mentioned this in your response earlier, this idea that Putin is the, the only man that makes decisions, the larger than life dictator, the, the Stalin reincarnated. And if you topple him, you topple the rest. And I think this extenuated into the, the idea early on during the invasion that, well, you know, if we apply these hard sanctions, and if we cripple the Russian economy, inevitably, the oppressed, suffering people of Russia will topple Putin, and that's the end of the invasion and the end of dictatorship and the end of tyranny, and there'll be McDonald's everywhere, and they'll be just like us. And obviously, it didn't happen, and it may never happen. And I want to discuss more, more on, on the impact of sanctions in just a moment. But I'm agreeing with your assessment here that, that there is fundamentally areas of distance of thinking between the Western and the Russian mindset. And I think it goes a long way into explaining the distrust, but also the confusion of each other's actions. And I think you, you've nailed it in, in your answer earlier, Yosef. However, one area in which I would argue that perhaps Russia and or Putin misunderstood the West or underestimated the West has been in, in the the response, the early and united response that Europe and the Americas and some of the rest of the world had immediately following the invasion. Do you believe that they underestimated how the West would respond? And was that a huge blunder in underestimating the resolve, the continued resolve in, in applying harsh sanctions and in condemning Russia so vehemently? Yes, indeed. I don't think that Russians expected the West supporting Ukraine so extensively that now you would hardly find a single analyst in Russia who wouldn't call the invasion of Ukraine the Russia-West war. And I mean, it's, it's staggering how easy they went to, to label this uh, uh, 
to something that is uh, implying the fact that uh, it, in the end of the day, it will be either Russia or West who will prevail, and that entails also the nuclear war. And uh, I think they were they were surprised, and they're always, I mean, with every supply of heavier and heavier weaponry to Ukraine, you see that Russians are really surprised how far we can get with that. And I think I, I think that played to our advantage also with the sanctions, which we will debate in in a bit. But uh, uh, we haven't capitalized on that, so uh, or, or at least yet. So yes, uh, I think they underestimated it. I mean, they, they, if you, I'm not not an expert on on military affairs, but if you if you read people like Barry Posen or listen to John Mearsheimer, who actually graduated from West Point or any other military expert, you would see that uh, the Russian numbers weren't. Uh, strong enough to to achieve the goals that they seem to to pursue because you can't take the whole country with the force of 125,000 men, right? That's uh, impossible, and it's impossible to 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 fill the the regime change and nation building and and social engineering with such a small force. So, in John Mearsheimer's words, uh, Putin hasn't planned that. And, but I beg to differ with him, and I think that they really underestimated Ukraine's army, and they really underestimated the, the, the strength of Ukraine's army that it gained after 2014. I recently read a report from, from Con- Congressional Research Service that said that the Ukraine army's, uh, Ukraine army uh, strength in manpower grew from six and a half thousand men in 2014 to 150 thousand men in 2021. It was in July 2021. Just for the previous year, US uh, supported Ukraine uh, with 600, 650 million US dollars uh, in equipment and, and and loans for the military. So so they were receiving constant training from the west and they were receiving they, they just changed their doctrine to to more western warfare that's why russians weren't able to prevail because they were counting with the same military force as they encountered in 2014 which was easier for them to predict how they will behave because they were fighting according to soviet uh, doctrine but uh, I, I think that it's i will stop here with the military analysis because I, I, th- this is not really my field but uh, in my opinion they underestimated the entire situation as such so 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 yes, you're right. Uh, and to your misinformation, I think it's a misperception, and and, and it's it's being actually in 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 uh, in, in uh, scholarly literature, it's being labeled as a as a misperception. Robert Jervis is an author of a very good theory of how misperceptions leads to war and uh, and these misperceptions are usually present in in conflictual situations when the the two different strategic cultures and two different perceptions of the world will meet and when there is lack of transparency between these two cultures so so one side is signaling something but the other side is just seeing something that is threatening for them in their own 
I mean, in their own perceptions. So that's why the, the Ukraine war is about Russian threat perceptions. It's not about actual threat, even though there, there could be some threat for them. I mean, I cannot really, I cannot really tell now. And I, I think we will, we will be able to tell in 20, maybe 30 years later when we could be able to, to look at this situation with less emotional optics and, 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 and see it totally different but now we can say that it's a it's a russian threat perception stemming from their misperception of nato's uh nato's uh, strategic plans or or the western strategic plans with ukraine like every war the rosy outlook of this will be over by christmas ends up this will be over in, in a decade and it seems that in this sense uh, what's happening today is no exception during the early days of of the invasion, um, of course, there were wild predictions and various uh, news outlets um, that uh, you know Russia's in over their heads, or that U- Ukraine would be toppled in in a matter of days. And um, and it's difficult, I think, for analysts to to be able to weather the media storm during at the beginning of of a major uh, major global event, precisely because it's we need time in order to sift through all the variables and, and give a detailed outlook. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned Mia Scheiman, and uh, that's really interesting. It's also an author that I've that I've been reading, and actually that I have read for a long time before this invasion. But um, he's garnered a lot of critics when he published the, the article, in which he applied a, a realist take on um, on the conflict. And realism is not the easiest pill to swallow. Uh, yeah, it can be difficult, especially coming from a more let's say liberal outlook towards the world uh, it can be it can be difficult but myself i appreciated a lot his his approach but also you know the the intention wasn't necessarily malignant it, it's just very much tied to classical realism um, but he's been predicting for a long time that russia yeah. might respond this way it's not uh, not a new thing and it's it wasn't for sensationalist uh, applause let's say Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's been he's been talking about that since 2014. And, and yes, he, he's actually trying to bring this perception of Russian strategic culture to the West. And he's trying to portray it. And I, I think he's not doing it wrong. But uh, given the very and, and there's a there's a there's a huge debate about uh, around realists today. And I uh, and I know precisely why, because they, they, they tend to tell true. And they tend to portray the uh, portray the world uh, as as it is, not as it should be. And yes, we all would like to 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 blame this whole situation, this tragic uh, situation around Ukraine, on on Putin's madness. But it is not that what it is. And we should we should learn from this, and we we should uh, we should draw lessons from 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 what happened now and, and and that's the point i mean we know that the russians are reacting aggressively to the changes uh, in status quo and 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 their so-called near abroad or we can call it the post soviet uh, post soviet space and uh, they will do it again uh, they will do it in georgia they will do it in belarus if they have chance uh, they will do it in kazakhstan doesn't matter. I mean, whether it's policing action that is uh, aimed to keep uh, friendly regimes in power against the protesters, as in as we witnessed in Kazakhstan at the beginning of this year, or in Belarus in 2020 and 2021, 
or whether it's uh, all all out invasion to 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 Ukraine or or Georgia, it still will be uh, Russia reacting to their threat perception. And uh, I know that the Georgian Georgia Russia Georgian war was uh, much more complicated. Uh, I don't want to go to nuances, but uh, but still, uh, it still demonstrate demonstrates the Russian will to use military power in their neighborhood. This is, in my opinion, what John Mirshammer wants to wants to bring to to Western discourse. He wants to he wants to bring some sobriety to to the discourse that is largely driven by emotion and by solidarity with Ukrainian people, and driven by the liberal perception of the world that is actually a bedrock of majority of our foreign policies flaws. A key distinction here, Yosef, sorry to jump in on you, but yeah. I think this point is important, that what Mearsheimer says, we don't necessarily have to agree with it from a moral standpoint. We don't have to exactly, yeah. go to sleep and uh, you, you know sing praises to the realist gods out there. But it's very much aligned to the way that the Kremlin thinks. And so there's a lot of use in understanding it, this idea without necessarily following the idea and, in daily practice. Yes, and John Mearsheimer is very good at putting things very in a very simple way so that everyone can understand it. And, and, and that's, his, that's why he's so popular in the world. Uh, as a as a as a, le- as a prominent realist writer, uh, because he's putting things really simply, plainly, and and that's that's it's easier easy to digest it, and and that's why his work is important, regardless of what you think of him. He is in opposition to to to, to what you can call a mainstream, and uh, I mean. The very progress and very idea of progress is based on dialectics. You need to have a counter argument to your argument in order to reach some conclusion. And, and if you don't do it, if you diverse your outcomes from single source, then it becomes methodologically flat. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, don't, I do not necessarily agree on everything with him. I think that the invasion of Ukraine was a grave mistake of Russian regime, but still, um, yeah, his work is important. And as the work of uh, the whole Quincy realist and restrained branch, which I, I like to align myself very often, there is important to, to have some sober critics to sanguine foreign policy. Now let's turn our attention to economic sanctions. This is the, the secondary part of the discussion that I wanted to, to have with you today. This is some research that you've been that you've been undertaking. It's a particularly salient point because at this point of the conflict, the West finds itself in this potentially awkward dichotomy in which we are committed to quite a harsh economic sanctions regime that, if on the one hand is economically disastrous for Russia, it may also be hard on us here at home. And also in the field of international relations and politics, we have taken a, a moral and, and a staunch position, which is now not so easy to retract, despite possible indications that this war might go on for quite some time further. And so inevitably, this discussion is quite an important discussion because it's going to lead 
policymakers into making not only the most effective solution, but also in trying to find the art of politics and how to balance our ideology on the one hand and reality, economic reality on the other. But let's talk about these sanctions in specific. We've rejected Russian foreign reserves in most Western countries, in numerous currencies. We've banned Russia from the SWIFT system. Despite this, we have seen actually the ruble bounce back quite stupendously and remain, uh, as of recording this, quite a highly valued currency. And they're hanging on to reserves of 620 billion US dollars as of June 2022. Can Russia expect to jump through these hoops of fires that we have set against them. And I'll let you explain these sanctions in in more details in a moment, without much difficulty. And did Russian decision makers, in your opinion, budget for the world unifying to this extraordinary degree against them? The difficulties will be great for Russian economy. Uh, right now, the forecast of the Russian economy is uh, that it will contract on 7.8% this year, which is quite a lot, even though one needs to stress the fact that Russia is the one who holds the key to the, to the global issues today. If we take a look uh, at, at, what really, at what really drives the economic crisis, on the global level is the is the energy prices these are the food prices and uh, and russia has both and russia is a, is one of the largest exporters of raw minerals in the world and pretty much of everything that is a basic level commodity russia is one of the largest exporters of primaries that's why for instance russia exports the most volume of gas in the world, but it is the second second largest exporter of gas uh, when it comes down to the revenues from the exports, because it exports like really primary commodities to the industry, and it's very cheap. Actually, it was. Uh, Let's talk past. And I just want to say that that Russia holds a key to these issues. And that's why uh, I wouldn't blame it solely on sanctions. Definitely sanctions were something that triggered many of these issues, uh, but they primarily triggered a trade war with Russia or economic war with Russia. And the major issue is the economic war, not only the sanctions that that are really, uh, really hurting the global economy. Let's say northern economy, because uh, the global south uh, is going to suffer, but countries like India and China are likely to benefit from this. But uh, what I wanted to say is that that also Russia was using our our energetic uh, dependence on it on, on its resources before the war, because they had rented these gas storing facilities in. Uh, in Netherlands and, and Germany. I don't know how that happened. I mean, it's, it's just a, another story of uh, how, you, how you shouldn't treat the strategic resources, but still they somehow managed to rent it out. And they were just, they were just playing with the energy markets and they, they created this energy prices crisis in Europe before the war. So they were making solid money on, on gas before the war. And uh, 
they perhaps knew that this is going to come and uh, they were preparing for war. They were they were sort of renumerating themselves for, 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 for the situation. Uh, and with all that said, it's just, uh, I don't know an answer whether the sanctions will work, whether the Russian economy will be able to overcome uh, the sanctions. But what I know is that the Russian nature is having a predisposition for overcoming crises like Stalingrad and, and, and they are really evoking this World War II moments and great patriotic war moments when the whole nation came together and overcame the, the crisis that the evil Nazi Germany was inducing on them. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it can happen. They will, they will outlast us in this economic war of attrition. And it's funny you mentioned Stalingrad, uh, Josef, because my belief or my perspective is that political imperatives seem to always outwit the economic ones. And so what that means is that a people, a society is willing to endure great hardships if it means that at the end of that path, they will secure a political objective that, it, that is worth it in their eyes. Um, and I think a good example of this, and um, not to segue you into another conversation, is, is here at home Brexit, which, you know, any way you slice it was always an economic risk, but one that if you ask many of the most ardent supporters of it today would say it was worth it. And so yeah. but there are many other examples that, that we can throw today. I think I think it's a question of uh, of an ideology, you know, uh, how hard you squeeze uh, the best from your people through the ideology, and the economy is in the background. But the economy, I mean, if you if you have a look at the Napoleonic Wars, what role the it was like the the primal or or proto ideological, you know, uh, struggle for for nation states and liberating nations around Europe. But in the end of the day, couple of individuals benefited from that war, and nobody's talking about that. And and that's the same with uh, with the, this current uh, climate of sanctions and uh, this current climate of uh, Russia Russia Europe war. Yes, of course, consumers will pay for that. But the big companies that are having the crucial or that are having access to crucial resources that are supplying military equipment to both sides will benefit from it in the end of the day. I have to agree with you on that one. And if anything, it follows a trajectory that we've seen time and time again. Yeah. Now, Yosef, you've mentioned that energy is, is a, a key, you've, you've mentioned the word key that Russia holds. Um, I think this is a particularly good word to use. Uh, of course, a key opens a door, but in this case, uh, a key opens, let's say, a door to, um, to an entire economy. And Germany, in particular, is a country that comes to mind. They are committed, perhaps more than other European countries, to discontinuing gas imports from Russia as soon as possible, perhaps even by this winter, which is alarming, not least of which to the Germans, uh, for many reasons. First of which is that Nord Stream 2, connecting Russia directly to Germany, has a transfer capacity of 175.5 billion cubic meters. And it would add, Nord Stream 2 would add another 55 billion per year. 
That accounts for more than half of European gas consumption. But if we look at Germany's gas imports, it's even higher than that uh, from Russia alone. Yeah. So this is a, this, there's a large dependency. Nobody can deny it. And, and as we know, it takes many years and a lot of investment, a lot of planning, a lot of engineering and time to build new gas pipelines to effectively cover the market need and the residential need. In this sense, and using the key as an analogy once again, do you think Putin has a perfect stranglehold over Europe's energy safety, including the biggest economy in Europe, Germany? And will that be more than enough to finance his objectives in Ukraine to the bitter end? I hope he has not. But if you look at the numbers he has, I mean, I, I, I wish I, I wish he hadn't. But, you know, there is only so much gas in the world. That's the first and foremost thing. You won't increase gas extraction on on the exact amount we need for the winter or we need for our yearly consumption that will be just cut off from Russia, which is, I mean, I mean, this goes both way, obviously, because uh, if you if you take a look on the gas pipelines and 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 the extraction sites in the, in the Russia, you would find out that majority of our gas bound for Europe goes from Yamal, and there is no other pipeline from Yamal to China or anywhere else uh, that would possibly alternate the the supplies for Europe. So if if Europe stops buying Russian gas, Russia won't be selling that gas, which is not small amount, uh, as you correctly suggested. If you, if you, if you break it down to, to, to exact, exact numbers, Russia is exporting approximately around 240 billion cubic meters, if I'm not mistaken, cubic meters of uh, gas uh, per year. And 175 billion is bound for Europe, and it's from Yamal, obviously. And I think that's uh, that says a lot about what we call economic interdependence. But for in the European case, it's much. I mean, it's slightly, it's slightly, slightly off topic, but it's very complicated for Europe now because uh, our production is bound for export. We live from export because. 500 million market isn't enough to supply the global power of, of European Union size, especially in a German economy, which is solely dependent on exports. And, uh, and on the, the German economy and German exports are bound the markets of the Central and Eastern Europe. Which, which are dependent on the German economy and the condition of German exports. And we've seen that the last month, German economy or German uh, f- foreign trade was first time since 1991 or, or from 1990s, first time since then it was in, in, in trade deficit. German businesses continue to deny the fact that uh, it's not a short-term price-induced inflation, but this inflation won't go anywhere or the high prices won't go anywhere until until this crisis is resolved. This is so complex situation and and I don't see any light on the uh, at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, so yes, there is mutual economic interdependence. European industry 
as cliche as it sounds, is built on uh, cheap resources from Russia. And if we won't continue to 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 produce on on cheap prices, then our exports won't be competitive on the global market, and that will mean a great blow for our economy. And at the same time, European power is built on uh, soft power, and the soft power and the, and the large chunk of our soft power is built on vibrant economy and showing that our economic model is the right one for uh, for uh, any other country, along with our political system. And if we won't be able to maintain this vibrant economy, we would lose a, a large chunk of our soft power in the world. Not to mention the the ability, of course, uh, any source of foreign policy in the world at, at the same time. I know this verges slightly into crystal ball fortune telling, but the matter is, of course, that we're not only talking about the economic interdependence that you've that you've described just a moment ago, but it also has ramifications here at home. And we have to pay both a perspective because it's it's become a political problem, not just how we respond to Russia and how well these sanctions are working against their objective, but also how much can we sustain this at home? And for example, here in the United Kingdom, we have seen the twin demons of inflationary pressures on the cost of living crisis, but also in rising energy prices, indubitably as a consequence of the sanctions that are levied against Russia. And despite the repeated calls of unity, which I think were more prevalent some months ago than they are now, but at what point can we reasonably expect a sizable amount of the disadvantaged, the dispossessed, the poorer people in, in Europe and in the Americas to uphold these moral convictions in the face of impoverishment? And, you know, this is considering that Russia hasn't had a short-term economic crash. I know that this, for example, there were scenarios that were listed at the end of the report, which you've co-written. This report was was an impact on the sanctions assessment, which is guiding our conversation today. And I've had a look at the report, and at the end of the document, there was a sort of a neat little summary of, okay, short-term, medium-term, long-term scenarios. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the most uh, sort of drastic ones to to Russia were actually in the short term, in which, look, if Russia doesn't have an economic collapse within a couple, two, three, four, five months of the sanctions being put into place, it's probably not going to happen. And we're now at the point, getting into summer of, of this year, in which it, it hasn't happened and it's not looking necessarily likely that it is going to happen. And so we need to put that into context with the economic damage that it's causing us at home, not just to the people that might be better off, but keeping in mind, uh, you know, with the cost of living crisis that I've just mentioned, that there is poverty at home too, even in the first world countries. And is it so easy to condemn people from a less advantaged economic background, the less well off, to say, look, you need to put the needs of, of families in Ukraine, essentially, above your own, even if they're hundreds of miles away, and even if the purpose that, that we've intended seems more distant than ever? Uh, yes, I mean, this question has so many dim dimensions to cover. First of all, I think it's, it's in a nice way, staggering how long the solidarity with Ukrainians lasted. 
even despite the economic hardships we all bear. And I mean, we as a consumers, as a, as a regular people are feeling that much more than the super rich people and politicians, etc. Yes, exactly as you said, the sanctions against Russia, these are unprecedented in a history, in a recorded history of a, of a modern economic warfare. We didn't know what is going to happen if we impose such uh, sanctions on such scale uh, on Russia. And we only could have hoped for, for them to work and to cause economic collapse of the country. Even the default that was induced on Russia through the sanctions, because Russia wasn't able to, to pay its debt because it was excluded from the SWIFT. But in the end of the day, Russia still had the liquidity. So the major consequence of default wasn't fulfilled, that the Russia could, didn't have money to, to, to continue its operation and the operation of a state apparatus. So this is something very, very interesting. It's very interesting to observe. But in the end of the day, it failed, right? And from the theory of sanctions in international affairs, we know that You've got either signaling function of sanctions or uh, constraining, which is mostly used uh, against the rogue regimes to, in order to con constrain them to, to acquire strategic resources or technologies or, or et cetera, et cetera. We look at the Iran or North Korea or Venezuela. But the major function of sanctions against Russia was to coerce it to behave other ways it was behaving and uh, we know from the history that this function of sanctions is uh, rather questionable and uh, we've got good empirical examples of this function of this function of sanctions to be faulty so yes as uh, stated in report the short-term collapse of russia would uh, was our best hope now I think the, the regime in the Kremlin will be able to sustain itself against this pressure from the West. It is thanks to the fact that it's just the West alone that is imposing sanctions. So the rest of the world is hedging on what's happening in the economy. And uh, look at the India, look at the China that is secretly buying Russian oil. And what's even worse, that... There were reports of Greek companies rebranding the Russian oil and supplying it to the West. So, I mean, let's be honest with each other how we are going to, to prevent these cases from happening, because these cases are also contributing to functioning of the regime in Kremlin. And there is the last hope of sanction, which is sanctions, which is a ban on um, advanced technologies that are being used in extraction of, of oil and gas. So the theory is, because it's still a theory, it doesn't, hasn't reflected in a, in a practice, is that Russia won't be able to extract the raw minerals because its machines, extraction machines and extraction sites will just break down and they won't have a spare parts to, to, to fix them. So this can happen. This can happen um, in next half a year. But how that will affect Russian economy, we still don't know. Whilst we see 
the direct effect of uh, of economic war in in our region so it's it's now as i said it's now war of attrition and this is this is uh, to a large scale related to to zero sum nature of any sort of conflict and they they see it either or and we see it either or so we don't want to back down from from our economic pressure because it would look like a victory for kremlin even though even though it is hurting us badly and i think at least from the from the empirical cases we know that these cases are often often resulting in revolutions and instabilities and and i think the the most unstable uh region of europe in these terms is balkans and then central and eastern europe especially the eastern europe because the people in these countries have uh, lesser or they don't have such buffer in their financial situation the costs of living are are relatively high compared to their wages so i think these regions will be the first ones in europe that will feel the political turbulences as a result of of this economic war with russia perhaps increasingly the question in europe the political question of the day will become look can we ask poorer people in our countries to suffer more poverty in the hopes that maybe possibly russian drilling machines can break down sometime next year it's a big ask and it's not my place to say what is right and wrong but i do wonder how society and how politicians will react to this in the coming future but you've mentioned the rest of the world uh, specifically india and china and i wanted to just touch down on this briefly because this is a subject that i've also been sort of reading on and, and asking myself i mean we know that russia has already slashed payouts to shareholders from unfriendly countries which is at this point most of the world and this is a good one they permit the patents without consent so it is now legal in russia to basically steal proprietary technology from wherever you can find it and apply it without any kind of penalty to a product that you that you're making uh, in russia so this is almost tantamount to completely abandoning the rules and conventions of today's global market so i wanted to ask you what kind of countermeasures such as that does russia have available in, in the near future and regarding china and india will they be a decisive ally in this regard china specifically having engaged in similar activity when it comes to copyright and patent infringement and of course uh, with china's long standing discontent with the current rules of the game will they see more to be gained in helping russia in this endeavor and having a profit having a stake in this new global order that we might be seeing building around us as a result of these sanctions yes you're you're, you're describing the right phenomena uh, i call it multipolarization of uh, global economy it's, it's not my term i haven't invented it obviously but i mean yes we, we will witness multipolarization we already witnessed it and we see how far the world has gone over the past few years when it comes down to the centers of power or gravitational centers or call it whatever you like 
But the, the result is that now the rest of the world, except the liberal democracies, has refused to join the West uh, against Russia. This wouldn't happen 20 years back. Absolutely, you wouldn't see that. And you see how the OPEC reacted to this war and uh, they actually sided with Russia and they refused to increase the production of oil. And, and I mean, to, to a large extent, we're hostages to, to Russia and OPEC when it comes down to, to, to energy prices. And we see the reaction from India, the biggest democracy in the world that is saying that it's, uh, I mean, they are on the sidelines. They, they, they keep stressing that it is yet another war that West is waging between themselves and, and it's not no business for them. There's no there's absolutely no business for them. So yeah, this is this is something that is uh, that is showing how the world has changed. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, that, there's not much to say about that. I'm not sure whether whether the Russia will manage to cope with it, but I think that Russia is better equipped to ambiguous and the gray sort of uh, operations than the West is, because the West was pretty much dominant force in the world for past several centuries. We just were used to be so prevalent and so so dominant that we didn't have to hide in the shadows and to devise strategies how to how to overcome something that is actually pointing against us. So I mean I, I know it's kind of said metaphysically but uh but I think this is the best uh, how to describe this current situation. Even though I can be wrong, uh, Russia can collapse, uh, Russian economy can collapse, or or the Russian society can just can just overthrow the regime in Kremlin. We will see that in in a month to come. I mean, we are seeing something unprecedented, and this multipolarization, if it is truly happening, I think will be a, a, a seismic event. That uh, you know the world hasn't seen, as you've said, for for centuries now. The the passing of of hands between one reigning status quo, one hegemonical power, to another. That that's a big shift. Of course, it's not new, and it's not entirely brought on by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Some analysts have been saying that look, the rise of China specifically over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, you've mentioned dialectics before in this conversation is is you know part of a, a a dialectical history that's unfolding before our eyes from one reigning superpower to another. That's a wider discussion for another day. But for now, and, and coming back to the subject of the rest of the world's response to Russia's invasion, beyond Europe, China and India, towards the rest of the global south. Do you think it's possible for Russia to rally together the markets of the so-called global south and simultaneously diminish the Western status quo that I was just mentioning earlier, and at the same time finding profitable ventures to keep its economy afloat? I think they don't have to rally the markets. The only thing they need to do is to offer the best price. That's what they are good at. We see that they are selling their uh, leftover oil for in 20 or 30% lower than the market price. 
I think even the bilateral contracts between the governments in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia were a nice example of uh, how we were benefiting from Russia willing to extract its resources and sell it, sell these uh, very cheap. So this is how you buy them. I mean, uh, uh, this is how you buy the third world, and uh, this is how China increased its uh, increased its sphere of influence in Africa to the proportions that now the leading force in Africa is China. And um, together with Chinese investments, Russian energies can really dominate the global south and uh, they can push back the, the Western influence there. Of course, I can be wrong. I, I'm just drawing on what I've seen from Chinese case. Russia definitely doesn't have any resources to to create something like China has created over the past 15, 20 years in, in, in Africa. Russo-Chinese entente can be very efficient in these terms because they, you know, even the fact that the, the production prices and everything is cheaper in these countries, I mean, in Russia and China, so they can, they can cause relatively strong foreign policy for much cheaper costs. So what I wanted to stress out was that, as a matter of fact, you mentioned that the China is dissatisfied with the status quo. Uh, I, I beg to differ. Uh, China was uh, uh, able to rise under these circumstances to the extent that it's now challenging the largest economy in the world. So it's more Russia that is this satisfied pariah of the world, though Russia lacks the resources to challenge the status quo. And at the same time, there is a question, what actually was the status quo? Was it the Cold War or some sort of a post-World War II organization of the world where, where there was a system of great powers? Or was it the unipolar world where the US was really dominant? Or was it the U.S. that has been building the liberal order via military interventions and, and forcing other states to behave according to their will? Uh, that was actually actually part of sort of labeled as a, as a revisionist. So it is hard to tell whether uh, who is right from the philosophical standpoint. But now I think that China is becoming increasingly dissatisfied thanks to more attention being paid to what China is doing in an Asia-Pacific. And I think the tensions or the incentives to, to push towards more multipolar system from the Chinese side that was mostly more lenient towards previous configuration, these incentives will be much more uh, visible to, after the Russian invasion and more... Uh, I don't want to call it hardline approach, towards these two, but uh, more proactive approach to, to Chinese and Russian threats. Yosef, yeah, so here I would have to cordially disagree with you, if you'll allow me, uh, on the matter of China. Because whereas it's true, as you say, China has obviously flourished uh, exceptionally in the last 20, 30 years, but it did so and it rose on the margins of the world system, by which I mean that it has integrated the capitalist economy very smoothly, or at least uh, very beneficially, uh, but rejects the other fundamental component, liberalism or democracy. Uh, the two go in tandem. This was always the intention after World War II, uh, self-governance and, and free governance and governance by the people. 
that's what World War II was uh, essentially fought over. I would argue that it has played the system rather than earnestly joining it. And in fact, I would extend this criticism to much of the Middle East and uh, several other parts of the world as well, uh, of course, Russia. Yeah, that's the, that's why I'm saying that it depends on your philosophical standpoint, because I don't think that the liberal order was a really fully accomplished venture. And the, the liberal order, which would in part entail the, this uh, liberalism as a, as, a, as a mutually accepted ideology, it wasn't really fully accomplished. So... Yes, they rose. I don't know whether they rose thanks to the system or despite the system, but it's very hard to to claim that uh, that you know the result of World War II or the Yalta Conference was uh, that the world was was supposed to choose their own governments and and that the liberalism was prevalent ideology because the bipolarity was exactly the opposite, right? And if you take a, take a look on the foreign policy of major liberal actors who were supporting dictators all over the world, not only during the Cold War, but also during the unipolar moment, it just, um, I, I don't think that liberalism is a precondition for, for a state to exist within uh, within the liberal world order. It's more about the economy and China fulfilled that. You're right, Yosef, and uh, it, it's not just philosophical in the sense that um, there was an ideological narrative, let's say, after the war, often repeated in schools, and an idea of what we fought for and what the world was supposed to be and etc. And, and then there was perhaps the reality that you were mentioning that is, well, you know, the USSR didn't think that. And in the West, um, we don't exactly have the best track record of supporting that when it mattered. So uh, I will take into account what you've said. And it, it's messy and it's complicated. And, you know, this is why we're in a podcast talking about these things. Yeah. You know, several times in this conversation, I noticed that we're both using us and the West interchangeably yourself in Bratislava and myself in London. But having said this, it has come to my mind, you know, Slovakia, or as it was back then, Czechoslovakia was part of the USSR. And, but perhaps we can say with some certainty that Russia has not done the best job of keeping this post-Soviet space aligned or even amicable to itself. Exactly. Yeah. But you lived and you worked in Russia. You've had first-hand experience of both coming from a post-Soviet country that has transitioned to see itself as a Western country, and Russia that has transitioned from a, an, an imperial past to a, a communist imperial past to what is today perhaps the, the third Russian empire, if I might be so boiled as to uh, coin the phrase. But you, you've got this first-hand experience, so I did want to raise this with you. From the perspective of the Russian people, not just the government, but the Russian mindset as a whole, does total Russian victory in Ukraine, does that mean a flag over the Capitol building in Kiev? And lastly, I know this is already a difficult question, but beyond that, will Ukraine simply mirror Slovakia in rejecting this Russian pro-Soviet space vehemently? So how could this ever be a victory, even with that flag? It is 
Certainly a great question you raised here. I actually mentioned that in the in the piece uh, about 101 realism lesson from the Russian incursion to Ukraine because you see it is hard to win expansionist war in 21st century, especially thanks to nationalism. Before the invasion of Ukraine, there were parts of Ukraine that were pro-Russian and were, were sympathetic to, to Russian regime. That has drastically changed, right? Whereas before invasion, there was approximately 50% of Ukrainians opposing accession to NATO. Now it's 80%, more than 80% Ukrainians are in favor of their country entering NATO. So I don't think that Russia will be able to achieve any sort of total victory over Ukraine. They restated their initial goals, which can be broken into regime change in Kiev and demilitarization of Ukraine. So in other words, defeating Ukraine army on the battlefield. Whether that's possible, I'm not sure, but yeah, they're winning now. I mean, if you look at territories acquired by Russian army, they acquired more than they have before. Even though it's a slow war, it's a war of attrition, but we will see how that will go in the, in the months to come. For the Russian people, I mean, they're very supportive of, of this war, but at the same time, I actually, I will actually refer to Andrei's latest article for Carnegie, where he was pointing on certain dynamics in the in Russian, uh, Russian societies. It's actually very interesting. And he made a case from best-selling books in Russia. So while before the war, the best-selling books in Russia were the ones about motivation and, and how to become a good manager and how to become rich. Now there are fantasies, sci-fi and Orwell's books. So it kind of reflects the, the general mood, even though the, the support for Ukraine remained for, for war in Ukraine and for Russian government remains relatively high. This was actually this we actually can observe after the annexation of Crimea when Putin's uh, rating went just to 83 or 85 percent, which is a really unprecedented rate of support. And this has happened after Russia invaded Ukraine again, and uh, his rating started to rise uh, again after a long time. So I still struggle to see how anyone can support a war. So I, I cannot really understand that anyone who just say, ah, yeah, I see, I support this because we are right. No, no one's right when it goes down to the killing other people, right? So uh, I cannot really agree with that, but uh, it's uh, something we cannot understand because Russians, I mean, if you're a citizen in a state that is considered as a great power, then you consider yourself as a citizen of a great power. And you think that becoming a, or being a thinking big of yourself and of your state means a lot to you, maybe, that can explain that, though I don't want to go that road because I principally cannot agree with what's happening on the, on, on the ground. And just to add to what you said there, Josef, beyond the intense media control by the Kremlin, which I think might explain to a great deal why there is such public support in Russia, 
I'm inclined to believe that there is a certain amount of the population. I can't say for certain what percentage. I don't think anybody can, and I wouldn't necessarily trust the polls that are coming out of Russia. That that do stand by this decision, and you know, you can break that down into many different variables. Uh, for example, I would say that in every country there is a certain unchangeable percentage of die-hard ultra-patriots or nationalists that will support anything this, their country does, uh, just as much as there will always be a percentage that will disapprove of anything that the government does. Public opinion is a, is a, it's a difficult, multivariable topic, and of course, it's difficult to trust any official sources coming out of Russia. So it seems to me to be one of those unanswerable questions, or as you've suggested, perhaps we'll have to wait another 20, 30 years after all is said and done to really analyze, you know, how many people in Russia and around the world supported this invasion, why and how much media influence was to blame, or how many deeply held convictions were there. As crazy as it might sound to us, how many completely rational, um, sane, uh, perhaps even intellectual academics, researchers that know the facts and figures and are not easily influenced by the media, nevertheless support this invasion for whatever reasons. It's complicated. I would allow that space for doubt rather than being a media platform which seeks to de facto matter of hand say, well, you know, they're either fools or they are being indoctrinated. There's a wider spectrum. And it's not easy to answer for anyone, so I won't subject you to the impossible question. Indeed. But as we come to the conclusion and the end of our brilliant podcast here, Yosef, we wouldn't be able to conclude this conversation without mentioning the title here, Winning the Unwinnable, and perhaps why, why we chose this title. And it has to do a bit about a point that you were mentioning before, that yes, Russia is conquering more land as, as a total percentage of of the Ukrainian lands that are held uh, currently in Russian control. But I'm left wondering, you know, okay, yes, it's conquest, but is it conquest over essentially a destroyed wasteland of what used to be the industrial heartland of uh, the Donetsk? And the resentful population that that is now being uh, controlled and conquered by Russia, does that lead to an inevitably insurrection, a strife, a terrorism? So the million-pound question, Yosef, that unfortunately I have to throw at you, what is the end game? What does Ukraine look like in the near future? First of all, yes, as conventional wisdom goes, there will be partisan warfare led after if Russia well, wins. And uh, there, we already see first signs of partisan actions in, in, in newly conquered territories. This also implies the fact that the guerrilla warfare is unlimited and the partisan armies have every time in the world, as we say in Slovakia, whilst the invader is there only for a limited time. Though this doesn't have to be necessarily true because Russia aims to keep these territories. And we don't know whether, whether Russia will pursue the same faith uh, as it did in uh, in uh, in case of Abkhazia or two separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk 
So whether these territories will remain semi-autonomous Russian satellites or they will just become a part of Russia. So, so these two things are very important, especially due to the, to the conditions of partisan warfare, whether it's going to be warfare on the Russian territory or some sort of separatist regions or republics territory. And um, what's next for Ukraine? I think uh, Russians will try to claim the whole Donetsk. And after that, I think there will be a room for discussion, maybe. I'm not sure. I think the worst case scenario for everyone is the frozen conflict, which is the most likely scenario at this point. I mean, in terms of of regional conflict. But the worst of the worst scenarios is that the West will admit that it is is fighting war against Russia and it will engage fully in a war with Russia because we see that this kind of stage in, 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 in Ukraine war is we are openly supplying Ukraine with training, equipment, everything included, financial support. And this isn't exactly the textbook example of a proxy war, because in proxy wars, you are mostly doing this covertly. So the the so at least you can pretend that you are not fighting against each other. But here we are not even pretending. Russians are openly saying that this is a war against the West. And I hope this won't happen. But it is just a matter of time when we will start to say or speak about this in, in that way. And that will necessarily encompass something of a zero-sum game. And it will include some sort of a confrontation on, on a much grander scale. And I'm very afraid of that. And I hope that this won't go down that way. The percentage that it will happen is 50 to 50%. So, I mean, gloomy, gloomy, uh, gloomy forecast, but uh, unfortunately, we're living gloomy times. Well, Josef, it's um, definitely a somber note to end the podcast. I agree with your line of reasoning, and fortunately, I I also think this can go any number of bad ways, which is actually a thought that I've continuously held since the invasion broke out. One of my largest fears, if not the largest fear that I have for international politics, and uh, this stretches back actually to last year when the signs were growing. Uh, that there might be conflict with uh, Ukraine was precisely that the West would be drawn into the conflict. And of course, Russia bears the majority of that responsibility and the blame, but not the only one. I think one of the most important messages that I can hope as a podcast hope in the little tiny bit of impact that I might have in the world is that the West is used to, in a way, calling the shots internationally and globally because it is the seat of economic and political power and has been for, as you said, uh, and as we said during this podcast, many centuries. With power comes the corruption, so to speak, of of becoming accustomed to that and arrogant uh, with that power. And in believing that uh, one's way is the only right way, and as, as much as I personally believe that democracy and a liberal order is the best possible system of governance. We need a measure and, and a dose of pragmatism and prudence 
in being able to see that the rest of the world may not agree with that and there may be no peaceful way to quickly bring that about other than leading by example and hoping for the best. I worry that with this power, with the responsibility uh, that the United States in particular has had to, as, the, as the world hegemon, as the world police, has also come an ideological pretension, one that specifically sees itself as guarantor and ensurer that everybody, every other country follows the line. This is dangerous, as I believe all ideology has the potential to turn into something worse than what it promises. And I worry that in many ways that the West, in this instance with Russia, has taken ideological fervor of we must defend Ukraine's democracy and freedom and liberty at all costs, even a hot war, which inevitably will mean nuclear exchange, or a very high likelihood of that, an unacceptable likelihood. But before I, I leave you to say your final uh, words here, Yosef, I would just like to state that uh, myself and my cynic believes that violence is never the answer. Thank you so much for joining us today, Yosef. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was a real good talk. Thank you for that. And I, I would just say that I hope that I was wrong and uh, things will turn out much, uh, much more brighter than I portrayed them. But uh, yeah, it is what it is for now. Thank you. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.